passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. One of the problems with the internet is that on the internet, everybody gets to share their opinion. Have you guys noticed that? That everybody gets to do that? And when everybody's out there sharing their opinion, it sort of gets harder to find what is the truth after a while. For instance, uh, when I go to buy products on Amazon, I try to check out the star ratings and the reviews. Anybody else do that? You, know, you buy a five-star product or at least a four-and-a-half-star product. Well, I didn't know this, but did you know that you can buy your star ratings on Amazon? A couple of you do, yeah. So you just put money into it, and you can get tons of stars. So you look like you're really highly reviewed, but it's actually all just a lie. Not only that, but the same thing with user ratings and feedback. A lot of those are deceptive and not truth. See, in this world, it's really hard to find truth. It's hard to find someone who's speaking with authority that you can trust. It's not just on Amazon that we struggle with that, but as you guys know, we struggle with that in the news media every single night because the news organizations report their news based on the agenda that they have to serve. Anybody notice that? Yeah, if they have a Democratic agenda, they report accordingly. A Republican agenda, report, a, report accordingly. So much for fair and balanced coverage. That seems to be a thing of the past. And once again, we're left struggling. What is something that's actually the truth in this world? Where is there an authority that we can actually trust? Well, you're pretty right on that, Tom. Well, this morning, we're going to meet an authority that you can trust, an authority that will always tell us the truth, even though it may not be something we want to hear, it's something we need to hear. And yes, his name is Jesus Christ. His words are authoritative truth we can trust. As a church, we are working our way through the gospel of Mark. And I, we're getting a little ways into that. The previous weeks of our study really introduced us a little bit more to Jesus. We learned that the gospel of Mark divides in two pieces. The first half is all about uh, letting us know that Jesus is our king. The second half is all about Jesus going to the cross. Now, in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, what we've seen is um, Mark introducing us to Jesus, who is our King. Beginning today, we move into the ministry of Jesus Christ, where our King begins to demonstrate his authority. And his authority as our King is far beyond the kind of authority that any earthly king has ever demonstrated. So this is the line that... Uh, that Mark's going to follow. For instance, this morning, we're going to see the authority of Jesus's words are different from the, anybody else's words. We'll see the authority of Jesus's words actually show his uh, superintendency over the demonic world itself. Next week, we're going to see Jesus's authority over disease. In future weeks, we'll see Jesus's authority over the Sabbath. Then we'll see Jesus's authority to forgive sins. Jesus' authority over the very forces of nature to be able to calm storms. Jesus' authority over the temple, and so on. And we'll see that Jesus is the king with the ultimate authority. And he's the one that we can trust. 
What I'd like us to do is I'd like us to read the passage we're going to study together right out of your copy of God's Word. So turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And once you've found that in your copy of God's Word, please stand out of reverence for the Word of God. And then follow along with me with your eyes in your copy of the Bible as I read this text. Beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once... His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. That ends the reading of the Word of God, and you may be seated. As you were, I was reading, and I think you'd probably noticed that our text divides into two pieces. The first part is Jesus' authority over the earthly teachers, because he teaches not like the scribes. And the next part talks about Jesus' authority over the demonic realm. So we'll build our study this morning under those two headings. So let's begin with the first one. Take your outlines out and follow along. Jesus has more authority than the wisest teachers. And it comes from these verses. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, and he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Let's begin with the pronoun, uh, the word they. Like, who is they referring to? If you were with us last week in our study, you know that Jesus has just picked up some of bands of his disciples. He's picked up Simon and Andrew, as well as James and John. And we know that those guys were fishermen. And he picked them up and said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Well, last week, to be honest, I, it was a very rushed week. I didn't have a chance to do all the studying I wanted, but as I was studying this week to get sort of caught up, I ran across a little interesting piece of information that I didn't share with you last week, but I thought I'd begin by sharing it with you this week. We know the relationship between Simon and Andrew as their brothers. We know the relationship between James and John is that they are brothers, and they're all four of them fishermen. But did you know they all worked for the same company? It's in the scriptures. They did. They all worked for the Sons of Zebedee Fishing Corporation. Now you say, is that true? Well, yeah, let me just show you right here. Luke chapter 5, 9 through 10. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So I just mentioned that because sometimes we've been around the church for a long period of time and we know about these guys, but we didn't realize they all worked together before uh, Jesus called them and they were partners. Now, 
these guys, what they do is they show up to a place called Capernaum. Let me explain to you what Capernaum is. Um, Capernaum is actually a, a name of a city, but it's a unique name because it's a combination of two Hebrew words. And the Hebrew words are kafor and nahum. Kafor simply means village or town. Nahum is not a word, it is a name. Do you guys remember the book of Nahum in the Old Testament? Old Testament prophet? Well, this is the town that Nahum was born in. And you know how we do that when a small town actually has somebody famous that comes from it? We don't want that small town to forget. Sort of like Sheldon. They like to remind everybody Tom Brands was born here. If you're a wrestling fan, you know that one. Well, it's the same thing with Capernaum. By the way, the prophet Nahum was born here. This is our claim to fame. This is our claim to greatness. This guy had a book in the Bible. Now, Capernaum actually starts out as a rather small town on the Sea of Galilee. Go ahead, Jeremy, and put that map up there. You can see where it's at there. It's sort of on the upper edge right there. But what that map doesn't show you but is very important to know is there were two major highways that intersected at Capernaum. So there's roads going north, south, east, and west out of it. One of those roads is a major Roman highway called Via Maris. So this is a great place to be able to do commerce and where people would do exchanges and a lot of business is taking place there. So the city is growing very quickly. In fact, the Romans have actually chosen at this point in history to place a Roman garrison in the city because it's so important and there's so much commerce and money that's exchanging in that place. Uh, thankfully, just so you know, the relationship between the Romans and the Jews in Capernaum was actually a very positive one, unlike what you had in Jerusalem where they were also rather antagonistic. To give you an example of what I mean of how positive this was, some of you may want to write down Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, because what you find in there is you find that there's a centurion, a Roman centurion, thank you, Kevin, who uh, donated the funds to build a Jewish synagogue in the city of Capernaum for the Jews. So you see that there's a real positive relationship with them. Capernaum is the hometown for Simon and Andrew and, and James and John. But what makes this interesting, this waterfront, small, growing city, is that they had a, 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 they had a waterfront area, a walkway right on the edge of the water. The best way I can describe that is when you go down to Arnold's Park, you know that section by the beer tent where you can walk right along the water there? Not that I'm at the beer tent, but, um, but as you walk right along the water there, it's so nice to be, have that lakefront idea. Well, they had something they built like that that was a half mile long, eight foot wide. And what they had done is they had built out a number of piers during that half mile section that jutted straight out into the lake. And so what would happen is the fishermen loved this little city because they would bring their catch in, park on the, on the docks, they'd bring it into the pier, they would salt the fish, and it would automatically get put on there to one of the Roman highways to be taken out to other parts of the ancient world where they would be sold. Because so I told you, uh, exporting of fish out of the Sea of Galilee was actually a big business. This is why Capernaum is so interesting in that regard. 
So this is what they do. They go into Capernaum. And immediately what we find is Jesus is teaching there in the synagogue. Now that's often a little strange. Why does Jesus get to teach in the synagogue when he shows up? Luke chapter 4 verse 16 tells us that this was actually Jesus' practice. He would go to a, a, a new city and he would teach in the synagogues. And you wonder, what would give him to write, the right to do that or the opportunity to do that? And to, under, to answer that question, I need to give you a little bit of background on synagogues. So here's a little bit of education that will be proved very helpful for you to understand them. If you've noticed, synagogues are not found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had the temple... You had priests. The priests were scattered uh, around Israel, and they did some teaching, and they did some counseling, but the temple was the only building for worship. But things changed in a major way in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians invaded Israel and took them into Babylonian captivity. If those of you who know your biblical history, you know at that time the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the temple of Solomon. So you have as a bunch of Jews in Babylon with no temple, and they don't know what to do to worship, and they have no place to worship. So what they began to do was get together in homes. Synagogue simply means in Greek to gather together. This is like the beginning of the home church because you know, they're gathering in homes to worship together. That's the only option they have. Then you know what happens is God had declared they would, be in, they would be in captivity for 70 years through Jeremiah. And Cyrus, king of Persia, comes in and he knocks off the Babylonians and he allows the, the Israelites to return. And under Nehemiah and Ezra, they return to Israel 70 years later and they set about to rebuild the temple, which is their house of worship. And they do rebuild the temple. It takes a while, but they get it done. But here's the interesting part. They didn't let the concept and practice of synagogue go by the wayside. While synagogues originally began as sort of home meeting groups, once they ended up with their independence and freedom, they began to create synagogues in the places of Israel. They weren't big buildings. They were small buildings. You could almost think of them a little bit like churches are today. Even in Jerusalem, where you have the temple, the Talmud tells us that they had 500 synagogues in Jerusalem where people gathered for worship besides the temple. So in many ways, uh, the synagogue functions like sort of an, um, a pre-Christian version of the church, or like little churches, but they're different than the church, and here's how they're different. Today, a church has a, a pastor, and the pastors do the teaching. But in that day, you didn't have a pastor. What you had was somebody called a synagogue ruler. And his job was essentially, number one, to be a librarian and to take care of the scrolls. Number two, to be a worship leader. And number three, he got to be the custodian. He cleaned the place and made sure it was presentable. On the weekends in the synagogue, there was the public reading and the teaching of God's word. 
During the weekdays, what happened is the synagogue functioned sort of like a school and occasionally like a civic court. Now, synagogues were numerous all over the place. Josephus tells us that in the Galilee, which we're studying, this area, the Sea of Galilee, there was approximately 240 small towns and small villages. And every single one of them had one or possibly more synagogues in them. They were small, but they were there. And this is why, according to the Jews, you just needed 10 males over the age of 13 to be able to form a synagogue. Now, um, here's where it gets interesting. While the primary purpose of a synagogue is the reading and the exposition of God's word, those people who would be able to do that are starting to run in short supply because there are so many synagogues out there. Those who would be the, the qualified to read and exposit God's word would be called the scribes or, or the elders. And they were necessary, because you have to realize, in that day, most of the people were illiterate. So you needed a literate person and an educated person to not just read it, but then to help you apply it. They're in short supply. And you have synagogues all over the place. So what do you do? The Jews in that day developed a, a policy called the freedom of the synagogue. And what that meant was that this allowed uh, visiting rabbis or visiting scribes, when they came into a town or community, they were allowed to read from the word, and they were then allowed to teach from the word. In fact, in many of these small towns, that wasn't just allowed, it was sort of expected. It was a high honor to be able to do that. And this is what Jesus is taking advantage of. He comes into Capernaum, yeah, smaller town. Guess what? Probably don't have many that are scribes or elders. Here comes Rabbi Jesus, a pretty famous teacher we know from the Gospel of John. He's already gone down to Jerusalem. He's already worked his way back. He's pretty famous. Everybody's pretty excited to have him do some reading and teaching from God's Word. So that's what's going on here. By the way, Paul also took advantage of this. You read in the Gospel of Acts. What does he do? He comes into a community and he goes and he teaches at the synagogue, taking advantage of this. Now, uh, let's go ahead and look what happens when Jesus teaches. It says here that the people are astonished at his teaching. Mark doesn't tell us what he is teaching. He's more interested in the response of the people to his teaching. If you're like me and you wish you could get behind one of Jesus' sermons and see what they were like, I think the best thing to do is simply go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. That is a sort of a transcript of what Jesus' preaching would look like. But this idea is that Jesus is astonishing people in how he's teaching. The word astonished in the English is not necessarily a good representation of the Greek word that is behind it. The Greek word behind it literally means to knock someone out of their senses, to completely blow them away. Uh, this past week, I was bored one night, and so I was slipping through some YouTube, and I ended up on a video that's like the <laughs> boxing world's greatest knockouts, 
which by the way, guys, it's sort of a fun one. You might want to look that one up. It's just these guys just getting laid out, just chapped on the tin, and they're just going flap on the canvas. And I thought to myself, man, that's like Jesus is preaching. I said, but he never hit a fist. There, he's just completely laying them out and blowing them away. Why is he blowing them away? And here's the answer. Because he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, let me tell you how the scribes were like in the first century. Scribes, they actually trace their uh, historical root back to Ezra in Ezra uh, chapter 7, I believe, and also Nehemiah chapter 8. The idea is that when God's word was read, they were to be the ones who were competent to be able to explain it and help people apply it so God's word would actually make impact and a difference in their life. But here's what happens sometimes. You get people like this that have to be educated, have work like that. Over time, sometimes people get educated beyond their intelligence. You ever heard that one? Or like educated beyond their usefulness for normal people? That's pretty much what has happened to the scribes in this day. You ask them about a text, and they will tell you what eight different other rabbis say about the text. They won't actually tell you what the text means. They would give you constantly their opinions about what it could say or it might say and didn't do people a lot of practical good. But here comes Jesus. He's not giving you a commentary from eight other rabbis. This is what the text means. This is what God wants us to do. Period. That's it. People are like, how could you do that? What gives you the authority to say that? And I think herein lies the key thing we need to take out of this in the way of application. Jesus' words were with truth and authority, where the scribes' words were with opinion and speculation. The application in your outline, the words of Jesus are authoritative truth, not speculative opinion. The scribes, they were essentially giving their Amazon ratings their opinions, their stars, not telling anyone necessarily the truth, where Jesus' words are absolute truth. We could actually go to them and rely upon them and know that in this world, what Jesus says is not the spin or opinion, it's fact. Now, this is how this applies. Maybe you're here this morning and you are struggling in your marriage. Maybe you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out how to make a, a relationship work between you and the person you love. There are options about how you can approach this. You can go to Amazon and you can type books on marriage and we'll come up a whole list of them. And then you read the stars and you read the opinions of other people. And then you end up with someone's opinion on what you, they think you should do for your relationship to make it a success. Some of it may be right, some of it may be wrong, but how do you know the difference? Or you can go to what Jesus says about marriage. You can go what God's word says about marriage and study this book, which is not speculative opinion. This word is authoritative truth. It tells us what we need to know. You see, I think sometimes as Christians, we have become too accustomed to Googling answers 
rather than going to God's word for answers. Google's opinion, God's word is truth. Let me give you another example of how this applies. You're going to hear a lot right now that if we could just get the right people in the White House or the right people in the Senate or the right people in the House, all of our problems would go away, right? And then our problem is the wrong political party is in power. I'm sorry. That is not what it says in the Bible. The Bible says that our problem is sin and our answer is Jesus. You may not agree with that, but that is not speculative opinion that is said with authoritative truth from Jesus Christ. For instance, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the human heart is the most, is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Or if you turn to the, uh, on the other page, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever, loves the, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The words of Jesus are that he is the only way to know God. That's not speculative opinion. That's authoritative truth from Jesus who cannot lie. So I think that when we read God's word, you must treat it, treat it much differently than other words. Now, some of you may say, really? Jesus' words have that kind of truth, and they have that kind of authority to them? Mm-hmm. And I can prove it. Real simple. Just keep reading the text and see what Jesus' words do when all of a sudden they encounter a demon, when they encounter the spiritual realm. Jesus' authority over the demonic world. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. This gives rise to a number of questions that we're going to need to spend some time unpacking. Like the most obvious one is this. What was a demon-possessed guy doing in the synagogue? That's a pretty freaky thought if you think about it. When we think of demon-possessed people, we think of the Charles Manson types, don't we? Guys with major bedhead and face tattoos, and they come up to you and say they're going to kill you and dismember your body. Those are demon-possessed people sometimes. In fact, we are going to study about one of those in Mark chapter 5. His name is called the Gadarene Demoniac. Oh, there goes a cap. But this text tells us that that is what some demon-possessed people look like. That's not necessarily what all demon-possessed or demonically influenced people look like. In fact, some people that are demon-possessed or demon-influenced appear quite normal because this guy is showing up at the synagogue. This guy is at the church Nobody thinks he's a nutcase. Nobody thinks he's a weirdo. But you see, if everybody thought he was a nutcase or a weirdo, he'd be locked up, wouldn't he? And he'd be able to have very little practical influence in the synagogue and very little influence in the world. And what this starts to clue us in is there's sometimes demonically possessed or influenced people 
that look rather normal. And that way they can be more influential. The scriptures tell us this. That necessarily Satan doesn't always look like a big, bad, ugly guy. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan tries to look like a good guy, when in reality he is a bad guy. Satan tries to look like a good religious guy, when he's really trying to destroy people. For instance, you go to the Muslim uh, temple, or mosque, excuse me. The Muslim mosque and all the teaching and preaching there, I'll just tell you right up front, it's demonically inspired. There's not a question about that. They're not leading anybody to Jesus. Jesus is the only way to know God. They're leading people in a whole bunch of religious speculation that are demonically inspired. The Mormon church. Oh, they so desperately want to be looking like a Christian church and get the label of a Christian church. But it's a demonically inspired doctrine. They're not leading people to Jesus Christ. They're leading people away from Jesus Christ. And quite honestly, that's the way Satan works in the church today. He likes to get his people that look rather normal into churches into uh, theological schools where they can get a place of influence and prominence. And then what he likes to do is create division. And then what he likes to do is lead people away from Jesus. For instance, look how the scriptures tell us this, that these undercover people work this way. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So here you have people that are in the church, but they end up departing from the faith because they end up getting caught up in deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons that were presented to them, not from outside of church people, but from inside of church people. Sort of like this guy that we have in the synagogue. He was working undercover, and everybody seemed to accept him. John chapter 8, verse 44 says this. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the way you tell somebody who is uh, demonically influenced or possessed is there is no truth in them because lying is their native tongue because that's the way Satan works. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. So in this case, what you have is a demon-possessed guy in the synagogue disguising himself as a good guy, trying to introduce lies to lead people away from the truth. And nothing has changed. Today, you would expect to see that sometimes Satan would like to take his people, get them into the church, and introduce lies and division in the church to split up God's body and to lead people away from the truth. 
Here's another verse that tells us about this. Jude 17 through 19. But you must remember, brothers, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who are following their own ungodly passions. It is these who do what? Cause divisions. They're worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They look like Christians, but they're actually not Christians. So we've talked about why was the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Another big question is this. Why was there so much demonic activity in the time of Jesus? If you notice, uh, there's some demonic activity in the Old Testament, and there's some demonic activity in the latter part of the New Testament, but it all seems to focus and center around the time of Jesus. Like, demon-possessed people are everywhere, and the demons are getting kicked out left and right. Why is it all focusing on Jesus and the apostles? Two reasons. Number one, quite honestly, I believe that <laughs> Satan and his demons are working overtime. I mean, wouldn't you, if Jesus is there? That makes logical sense. The other thing is this. The very presence of Jesus causes those demonic powers that are normally hidden to surface. Let me say it again. The mere presence of Jesus causes the demonic powers that are normally hidden to surface. This guy who is undercover in the synagogue trying to introduce lies and deception, he did not plan to surface himself. He was liking his work right there. But he was forced to surface himself by the presence of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and the truth of Jesus. <clears throat> Let's look at what the demon says when he bursts out. And by the way, I should mention this. I have it in my notes here. When it says the demon cried out of him, the interesting part is the Greek word for cry is to cry as if in suffering and in agony. So this guy is literally completely freaking out by the holiness and authority of Jesus in his presence. Here's what he says. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And when he says this, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What he's saying is essentially, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. This is my synagogue. I've got this thing under control right now. And then he says, have you come to destroy us? You notice here, the demon has absolutely no question of who has the authority. No question of who Jesus is. He knows exactly what Jesus will do to him in the future. Before Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 25 about the lake of fire, before the apostle John talks about the lake of fire in the book of Revelation chapter 20, this demon knows all about the lake of fire. And he knows that's where he's going. It's not a matter of if he's going. It's not a question of who's going to send him there. It's only a question of, is now the time? Talk about the authority of Jesus. This demon understands he has the authority. And then he says this, I know who you are. Which, interestingly, James, or John, Andrew, Simon, everybody else really doesn't get who Jesus is. And he just blurts out, you are the Holy One of God. He has no problem understanding the identity of Jesus. Here's what's interesting. In the book of Mark, there's this growing realization who Jesus is and that he's the king. 
Remember, we learned this in the very beginning. Halfway through the book, exactly in the middle, Peter finally gets it. Mark chapter 8, verse 29, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. But in the first half of the book, when though human beings get Jesus' identity, every single demon that Jesus encounters gets his identity without a question. We find this here in Mark chapter 1. You are the Holy One who is the Son of God. You go to Mark chapter 3. Whenever the unclean spirits fall him, saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Every single one of them did that. You go to Mark chapter 5. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God. In other words, I beg you, do not torment me. No question of who has the authority. No question of who's in control. And every single one of the demons know what Jesus has come to do. And it's here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now here's the next interesting part. Jesus says to him, but the, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. In essence, what Jesus says here is in the Greek, it's not necessarily a nice thing. It's shut up and get out of here. It's a, it's a nasty rebuke. Just like, just shut up. Scam. It's like a little poodle that goes to bite your ankles. You know what you do to those little poodles? Poof! And they go like running and yelping and screaming. This is what Jesus does to the demon. He kicks it like it's a, a poodle. At the mere authority of his word, the demon screams and leaves. That may not seem like a big deal until you actually look at what typical exorcisms are like and typical exorcisms were like. <clears throat> exorcisms, if you've studied those things, like the Catholic Church kind of exorcisms, they're kind of a, a big deal and special candles and holding up crosses and all kinds of chanting and all. You're going to get this you know, guy free of a demon. And in the first century, you had that kind of stuff going on. And by the way, it didn't work real well. It wasn't real effective. Look what we um, have down in here in Acts chapter 19, 13 through 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered him, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Didn't go too well. <clears throat> but at the authority of Jesus, the demons scream and they run. Now before you flip pages, let me just show you one verse I skipped over, by the way. I want to come back and look at it. Just so you know, you and I do not have this kind of authority. To, at our word, send a demon running. There are certain people who have this authority. Jesus has this authority, 
And Jesus delegated that authority to his apostles. He did not give it to you and me. That's right, found in Luke chapter 9. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Why we don't have the authority to cast demons out of people, Jesus does have the authority. When it comes to the fact of somebody who is demon-possessed, we do not conduct exorcisms. Exorcisms are not biblical. When somebody is demon-possessed or demon-influenced, we don't conduct exorcisms, we conduct evangelism. We tell them about Jesus Christ. We introduce them to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes into someone's life, the demon goes out of someone's life Fleeing from Jesus' presence, not fleeing from our presence. After the first service, I talked to somebody who heard this message, and they said that they had been in Haiti, and they had seen this kind of stuff, where you have people that are demon-possessed. And what does a missionary do? They evangelize. They share the good news of Jesus again and again. And when somebody receives Jesus, like a witch doctor... All of a sudden, there's this convulsion, and, this holy, and the demonic spirit goes out of them. So, how do we make a demon scream? Not by our strength, not by our power. Jesus is the one who makes a demon scream. We evangelize people, tell them about him, and he is the one who has the authority and the power. And the text ends this way. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the region of Galilee. Now, in our text this morning, I want to give you two walk-away, take-home applications. And they are this. For truth, turn to God's word instead of Google. For truth, turn to God's word instead of Google. You know when you would have a question and I have a question, we Google it. That's the first thing we turn to. But Google will only give you speculative opinions. God's word is guaranteed to give you authoritative truth. So we turn to God's word before we turn to Google. Now, by the way, I, I just want to tell you, uh, sometimes we struggle to find answers to our questions in God's words. Let me give you a website that can help you. And it's, I put it on your outline. It's called gotquestions.org. I encourage you to look it up today. This is a guy who's really gifted, and he's a good, solid, biblical guy, and he has taken thousands of questions that people have submitted to him, and he has gone to the Bible and answered those questions in about three or four paragraphs and put the Scripture verses with each uh, answer so he can show you how God's Word applies to answering that question. So that would be authoritative truth you want to turn to. The other thing I have for you is this. Jesus is the only way to make a demon scream and to break the footholds Satan gained in my life through sin. Ephesians chapter 6, And put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
And then Romans chapter 6, verse 10. And when he died, he died to break the power of sin. The Bible tells us that the struggles that we have, while in part due to our own sinful nature, they are not exclusively because of our sinful nature. We do not merely wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against dark demonic powers. And you, if you've been around for a while, you know that when you've given in to a particular sin, that uh, Satan likes to use that particular sin as a foothold in your life to leverage you further and further into sin in your life. I don't know for you if that foothold that he's gained is alcohol. I don't know if that football, the foothold he's gained is pornography. I don't know if that foothold he's gained is depression and despondency or whether it's anger management. But you know what I'm talking about, where it seems like it's almost a supernatural power that at your weakest moment seems to drag you down further and further into your sin. And you find yourself battling with that sin, trying to beat it in your own strength. I'm going to tell you, you can't win in your own strength. But Jesus, he's the one that makes the demons scream. He's the one that has the power and authority <clears throat> to send the demons fleeing. What do you do when you find yourself sort of in these battles? You memorize the words of God. Because remember, God's words are authoritative truth. So you can quote them in your mind when you need them. You keep your finger in the text. You keep your finger under good and godly teaching. You stay in a, in, a, in a group where they can pray about you. What you do is you essentially try to walk as best you can, as the most faithfully you can with Jesus Christ. And Jesus, my friends, is the, ones who, he's the one who sends the demons fleeing and breaks the strongholds that demons have gained in your life as you've walked into areas of sin. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.